Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 10 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Last Hope. In the previous episode we heard about how the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II had transported much of the Turkish fleet into the wide estuary called the Golden Horn to the north of Constantinople. Because the Byzantines had blocked the entrance to the Golden Horn with a great iron chain, which perhaps rather surprisingly the Ottomans weren't able to break, Mehmet had come up with the brilliant idea of dragging his ships overland into the Golden Horn. Historians think that the Vikings had also done this in a raid on the city in 860, although the evidence for this is actually a bit thin. But in 1453, Mehmet definitely did move ships overland and took the defenders of Constantinople by complete surprise. Now, the Byzantines planned to do exactly what they'd done over the centuries before with enemy fleets attacking Constantinople from the Arabs to the Vikings, which was to burn them. In the past, they'd done this with Greek fire, which was a petrol-based substance used in a sort of flamethrower. And in 1453, the plan, as we heard in the last episode, was to use Greek fire and whatever other incendiary substances were to hand in a night attack on the Turks. And we'll find out in this episode just what happened with this daring plan. So I won't spoil it and tell you the outcome now. But the title of this episode is The Last Hope and what the Byzantines knew they needed now more than anything else was help from the outside and realistically the only source for that help would be from Venice which of course had a very powerful fleet and considerable commercial interests in the eastern Mediterranean. Indeed as you know there were many Venetians defending Constantinople already But what the Byzantines really needed to save them was a full offensive by the whole Venetian Republic against the Turks, which many Venetians were reluctant to do in case it disturbed their trading interests. So we'll hear in this episode how the Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI planned to make a last desperate appeal to Venice. And as usual, we'll hear from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. Confronted with a Turkish fleet in the Golden Horn, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI and the famous Genoese soldier Justiniani had summoned the Venetian sea captains to a crisis discussion. Various suggestions were made. One proposal was to induce the Genoese colony at Pera, which had been neutral, to join in a general attack on the Turkish fleet in the harbour. With the help of their Genoese boats, which had hitherto taken no part in the war, the Turks might easily be beaten in open battle. But the Genoese at Pera were unlikely to wish to abandon their neutrality, and in any case time would be lost over the necessary negotiations. Another proposal was to land men on the opposite bank to destroy the Turkish guns at the Valley of the Springs, and then to attempt to burn the Turkish ships. But there were not enough fighting men in the city to risk so hazardous an operation. Finally, the captain of a galley that had come from Trebizond 
Trebizond, Giacomo Coco by name, proposed that an immediate attempt should be made by night to burn the ships, and he offered to lead the expedition himself. His offer was accepted by the council, who decided to act without informing the Genoese in the city. Secrecy was essential, and the Venetians were prepared to supply the necessary boats. Coco's scheme was to send two large transports ahead with their sides protected against cannonballs with bales of cotton and wool. Two large galleys were to follow to drive off any opposition. Hidden by these great ships, two small fusti, propelled by oarsmen, would creep unnoticed into the midst of the Turkish ships, cutting their anchor ropes and flinging combustibles onto them. To Coco's disappointment, it was decided to wait until the night of the 24th to make the attempt, in order that the Venetian ships might be prepared. Unfortunately, the secret was not kept. Somehow, the Genoese in the city heard of it and were furious at being excluded, suspecting that the Venetians wished to steal the glory. To pacify them, it was agreed that they could supply one of their boats, but they had none ready, so they insisted that there should be another postponement until the 28th. It was a disastrous decision. The Turks were all the while adding to their number of guns at the Valley of the Springs, and it was impossible to keep all the preparations unnoticed. The news reached Pera and a Genoese there who was in the Sultan's pay. On Saturday the 28th of April, two hours before dawn, two great transports, one Venetian and one Genoese, well padded with their bales, crept out from the protection of the walls of Pera, accompanied by two Venetian galleys, each with 40 oarsmen, under the command of Trevisano himself and his deputy, Zachariah Grioni. They were followed by three light fusti, each with 72 oarsmen, with Coco in the leading boat, and with them a number of small boats carrying combustible materials. As they started out, the sailors noticed a bright light flaring from one of the towers of Pera. They wondered whether this was a signal for the Turks, but as they drew near to the Turkish fleet, everything seemed to be quiet. The heavy transports and galleys moved slowly through the still water, and Coco grew impatient. He knew that his boat could outpace them, so, eager for action and for glory, he brought the fusti through the line and made straight for the Turks. There was a sudden roar as the Turkish guns opened fire from the shore. They had been warned. Coco's boat was hit by one of the first shots. A few minutes later, it was struck amidships and sank. A few sailors were able to swim ashore, but most of them, including Coco himself, perished. The other fusti, with the small boats trailing round them, made for the protection provided by the galleys. But by the time they came up, the Turkish guns were keeping a continuous fire, directing their aim by the light of flares and by their own flashes. The two transports in front were struck many times. Their bales saved them from serious damage, but their sailors were too busily engaged in putting out the smouldering fires caused by the shots to do anything for the small boats, many of which were sunk. The Turks concentrated their main attention on Trevisano's galley. Two balls fired from the slope of the hill struck it with such force that it began to fill with water. Trevisano and his crew had to take to their boats and abandon it. After this success in the faint light of dawn, the Turkish ships put out to the attack, but the Christians were able to disentangle themselves. After an hour and a half of fighting, both squadrons returned to their respective anchorages.
Forty Christian sailors had swum ashore to the Turkish lines. Later in that day, they were brutally killed by impaling in full sight of the city. In revenge, the Byzantines took 260 Turkish prisoners that were held in the city to the walls and beheaded them all before the eyes of the Turks. The battle had shown once more that the Christians outmatched the Turks in the quality of their ships and their seamanship, but they had nonetheless suffered a costly defeat. They'd lost a galley and a fuster and about 90 of their best sailors. Only one Turkish ship had been destroyed. The depression in the city was deep. It was clear that the Turks could not now be displaced from the Golden Horn. They had not obtained complete mastery of it. The Christian fleet still floated there, but the harbour was no longer secure and the long line of walls that faced it was no longer free from the danger of attack. To the Byzantines, who remembered that it had been over these walls that the Crusaders had entered the city in 1204, the outlook seemed especially threatening, and the Emperor and Justiniani were in despair to know how they could now man the long line of defences. Meanwhile, on the Turkish side, by moving half his fleet into the Golden Horn and by defeating the attempt of the Christians to dislodge it, Mehmet had won a great victory, but in spite of this, it seems that he still believed that the city would have to be captured by breaking through the land walls, although he could now, of course, threaten the harbour walls while still keeping enough ships outside the great chain blocking the Golden Horn in order to blockade the city. Moreover, should a relieving fleet arrive and manage to force the blockade, it would find no peace in the harbour. The new situation also gave him a tighter control of the Genoese colony at Pera. The part played by the Genoese there had been shamefully equivocal. The government of Genoa had given the local authorities a free hand, while probably advising them to pursue a policy of neutrality. This they had officially done. The general sympathies of the colony were with their fellow Christians across the harbour in Constantinople. Indeed, several of the citizens had joined Justiniani and the colony's merchants continued to trade with Constantinople, sending what goods they could spare to it. But others did indeed also trade with the Turks, although some of these acted as spies reporting to Justiniani the information that they gathered in the Turkish camp. But it was hard for any Genoese to like a Byzantine and still harder for him to like a Venetian. A few heroic soldiers like Justiniani or the Bocchiadi brothers might fling themselves wholeheartedly into the struggle, but at the colony of Pera, where the average man did not see himself to be immediately threatened, such heroism seemed unnecessary. The Byzantines and Venetians returned the dislike, though they genuinely admired the Genoese soldier Justiniani and were ready to follow his command, and though they gave generous praise to the other valiant Genoese, the colony of Pera appeared to them to be a nest of traitors to Christendom. The Ottoman Sultan certainly had his spies there as the story of the last battle showed. Surely too it was thought someone in Pera must have been aware of the Sultan's preparations to move his ships along a road so close to their town walls, even though it doubtless could not have been prevented, at least some warning of the operation might have been sent across the harbour to Constantinople. Archbishop Leonard himself, a Genoese, wrote with some embarrassment of his countrymen's behaviour. But if the Christians in Constantinople were 
dissatisfied with the citizens of Pera, so too was the Ottoman Sultan. He could not well attempt to occupy the colony while he had the siege of Constantinople itself on his hands. To storm it would use up more men and machines than he could spare for the moment, and any move that he might make against it would probably bring a Genoese fleet into the Levant, and he would lose his command of the sea. But now that his ships were in the Golden Horn, he encircled Pera. Its merchants could no longer easily row their goods across the harbour to Constantinople, bringing the latest information about the Turkish camp. Unless Pera was prepared to break its neutrality, there was little more that it could do to help the Christian cause. And the Sultan seems to have been satisfied from the agents that he maintained there, that the Genoese authorities were not going to take such a risk. Also, the Sultan could now improve his communications with his army on the heights behind Pera and with the Turkish naval headquarters on the Bosphorus. Hitherto, the only road had made a long detour around the marshy head of the Golden Horn, though there was a shortcut through an inconvenient ford across its upper waters. Now, with his ships in the Golden Horn to protect him, he could build a bridge across the harbour just above the city walls. It was a pontoon constructed of about a hundred wine barrels lashed securely together in pairs, joined lengthways, to form the width of the passage with a slight space between each pair. Over the barrels were beams and over them planks. Five men could walk abreast on them and they could support heavy carts. Attached to the pontoon were floating platforms, each strong enough to bear the weight of a cannon. Troops could thus be moved quickly from the perishore to the walls of the city under the protection of the guns, while the guns could pound at a new angle against the walls of the Blackenai quarter. The Christians still kept most of their ships at the boom to prevent the junction of the two Turkish fleets and to welcome any relieving flotilla that might arrive, and the Turks did not venture to attack them for several days, but their presence there could not disguise the fact that the defence had lost control of the Golden Horn. Nevertheless, the Sultan did not follow up his victory with any attempt to assault the city. He preferred for the time being to harass and wear out its defences. The bombardment of the land walls never stopped. Every night, teams of citizens had to come and make what repairs they could. The guns from the new pontoon platforms hammered at the Blackenai quarter. Every now and then, Turkish ships would put out from their anchorage across the Golden Horn and make as if to attack the walls of above the harbour. Byzantine and Venetian ships had to keep on the alert to intercept them. There was scarcely any hand-to-hand fighting for a week and no loss of life. But the city had other problems to face. Provisions were running short. Men who should be at their stations on the walls had to continually ask permission to go back into the city to find food for their wives and children. By the first days of May, the shortage was so acute that the Byzantine emperor made a fresh collection of funds from the churches and from private individuals, and with the money bought up whatever provisions he could find, setting up a committee to see that they were evenly distributed. It did its job well. Though the rations were small, every family had its share. There were no more serious complaints for the time being. But the gardens in the city produced little at that season, and fishing boats could no longer put out safely to sea, even in the Golden Horn. The number of cattle and sheep and pigs within the walls had never been large and was quickly 
diminishing as were the stores of grain, unless provisions, even more than men, were soon sent from outside. The soldiers and citizens would be starved into surrender. With this in mind, the Byzantine emperor summoned the leading Venetians, as well as his own nobles, and suggested that a swift ship be sent out of the harbour, down the Dardanelles, to seek the fleet that the Venetian leader in Constantinople, Minotto, had promised that Venice would dispatch. It had been on the 26th of January that Minotto had written to Venice to beg for it, and nothing had been heard in reply. At Constantinople, no one knew of the delays that had occurred at Venice, where, though Minotto's letter had been in the Senate's hands by the 19th of February, exactly two months passed before the relieving fleet set sail. The emperor had great faith in the Venetian captain-general Loredan, who he had heard was a brave Christian commander. He, however, did not know of the instructions that were given to the Admiral Alviso Longo on the 13th of April that he was to take his fleet as speedily as possible to Tenedos, stopping only for one day at Mudon to revictual. At Tenedos, he was to remain at anchor until the 20th of May, informing himself about the strength and movements of the Turkish fleet. On that date, he would be joined by the Captain General Loredan with his own galleys and with galleys from Crete. Then the whole Venetian fleet would sail up the Dardanelles and force its way to save the beleaguered city. Nor was it known at Constantinople that Loredan was only ordered to leave Venice on the 7th of May. He was to sail to Corfu, where the governor's galley would meet him and take him to the Negropont. There, two Cretan galleys would meet him and they would all sail for Tenedos. If Longo had already left for Constantinople, a galley would have been left behind to inform him and escort him up the Dardanelles Straits. But he was not to provoke any action by the Turks until he reached Constantinople, where he was to put himself at the Byzantine emperor's disposal, emphasising to him the great sacrifices that the Venetian Republic was making in coming to his aid. If Constantine had already made peace with the Turks, the captain-general was to go to the Morea and use his forces to oblige the Byzantine despot Thomas to restore some villages that he had illegally annexed. On the 8th of May, the Venetian Senate passed supplementary resolutions. If the Admiral Loredan heard on his journey that the Emperor had not made peace, he was to see that Negropont was placed in a proper state of defence. He was moreover to be accompanied by a Venetian ambassador, Bartolomeo Marcello, who was to proceed at once to the Ottoman Sultan's court and assure Mehmet of the Venetian Republic's peaceable intentions, because the captain-general and his forces had merely come to escort back the merchant ships engaged in the Levant trade and to see to Venice's legitimate interests. The sultan should be urged to make peace with the Byzantine emperor and the emperor to accept any reasonable terms, but if Mehmet was determined to continue with his enterprise, the ambassador was not to insist, but was to report back to the Venetian Senate. The Senate's instructions were carefully thought out and might have been effective had there been limitless 
time. But no one at Venice understood as yet the tenacity of the Ottoman Sultan's character, nor the superb quality of his weapons of war. The threat to Constantinople was known, but everyone believed that somehow the great fortress city could hold out indefinitely. The Pope, despite his anxiety, was even more leisurely. It was not until the 5th of June, a week after Constantinople fell, that his representative, the Archbishop of Ragusa, informed the Senate of His Holiness's proposal about the five galleys that the Venetians were to loan to the Pope for the rescue of the city. He would pay 14,000 ducats, which should cover the salaries of the crews for four months. The Archbishop was told that this was not enough. He returned to Rome with a demand that the Pope must also pay for part of the armament of the fleet, but in the meantime the galleys would be made ready for the voyage. In ignorance of all of these delays, and in the hope of soon making contact with a Venetian fleet, a Venetian brigantine ship from the flotilla in the Golden Horn, with 12 volunteers on board, all disguised to look like Turks, was towed to the great chain blocking the Golden Horn on the evening of the 3rd of May. At midnight, the chain was moved to let the ship through. Hoisting the Turkish colours, it sailed unintercepted on the north wind across the Sea of Marmora and out into the Aegean. It was the last hope for the defenders of Constantinople. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet's next moves against Constantinople. See you then. Mm -hmm.